if there's any new listeners out there that happen to be tuning into this, let me just say that this is such an amazing resource for academics, for staff, academically, politically. You know, these are really frightening, uncertain times. And this podcast, you know, it's called Surviving Society. And that's exactly what it helps us to do. Welcome to Surviving Society. This season's broad theme is... Imagining a new normal. Towards social justice. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society remotely. So excited that our pre-chat... It's one, one of my favourites. already. <laughs> we've been talking, we've been doing our pre-chat for about an hour. Like, we've only just started recording. We're absolutely buzzing to be joined by Brendan McGeever, author of Antisemitism and the Russian Revolution, academic, brilliant scholar, also co-author of one of my favourite academic papers, Racism, Crisis, Brexit, with Satnam Verdi, which if you haven't read, is in the episode notes. Read it. It's so good. Uh, but yeah, thank you for joining us, Brendan. Honestly, thanks so much for having me on this show for months now, or is it years? Maybe two years now, listening to this podcast. And it really is just such a wonderful, brilliant program brilliant resource you don't need me to tell you this but if there's any if there's any new listeners out there that happen to be tuning into this let me just say that this is such an amazing resource for academics for staff academically politically you know these are really frightening uncertain times and this podcast you know it's called surviving society and that's exactly what it helps us to do Thank you. you know, I think first and foremost, it's for sociologists, obviously, but I, I always felt with this podcast that its reach was way beyond that and should be mandatory for people, regardless of their field. So big shout out to you guys for doing this. And really, thanks so much for having me on. Thanks, oh, well, without the works of people like yourselves, people that came before us, there's no way we would have the tools to be able to do something like this. So, yeah, but this is work. Well. Thank you, listeners. <laughs> your show, no, but your show is work. Your show is academic work. The work that you guys do. Thank you. We're going to talk about your new book. Initially, I was like, right, this is quite specialist. Like, I need to really scrub up on my like Russian history, like. Whenever I'm thinking, whenever I've got questions about Russian history, I just message T or call T because T knows all fucking history. But I was like, but then when I started reading Brendan, I was like, whoa, this is like telling me about race, racism and politics today. There is so much in this book. Felt like I was basically having a conversation with someone about politics now. Chantel, I can't tell you how much that means to me. Honestly, I wrote this book like not as a narrow work of kind of Russian history, which, as you say, in some senses, that's actually what it is. But I wrote it in my mind. The reader was someone who was, say, I don't know, engaged in questions around the sociology of racism today. That was one of my readers among several. And I'm so pleased that, like, you've caught it in that way. It's jumped out at you in that way as well. So thanks a lot. That's exactly what the book is trying to do, is to grapple with something that's really, really familiar to us which is the presence of racialization within the politics and culture of the left in terms of activism, in terms of kind of political strategy, but then to look at this in a kind of historical dimension in somewhere that's at the margins of racism studies geographically, and that's Russia. We don't tend to think about Russia as one of the kind of go-to case studies for, say, the sociology of racism. And also to take a form of racialization that is also at the margins as well, which is anti-Semitism, something that's not always situated at the centre of what we understand as racism studies. So it's kind of an unusual book for us in that way, but I'm just so pleased that there was something familiar about it as well for you. I think for me, the reason why I, I like history is because you can draw out parallels, right? It's, it's never the same, but there's parallels that you can draw out. And if you look at the Russian Revolution and you're touching on anti-Semitism, it's something that speaks throughout Europe and it kind of rings through Europe up until the present day. So when people read history, to see it narrowly as that thing and not look at your own and not to draw links to where you are now 
it's almost doing it a disservice when you look at history that way because it's very narrow way to look at history as it's something that happened in the past and it's shut off and it's in a vacuum that's not how it works right absolutely it's as marxist historian ep thompson said you know the past is not dead it's still with us and and carries possibilities for the future (laughs) i like that i like that for me it was really interesting like how you start off talking about the Bolsheviks taking power in 1917. And just thinking about my own little, very, very limited knowledge of Russian history. I did A-level history, right? And we did like about Russian dynasty. and Romanovs. Yeah. And then all the way up to yeah the Russian Revolution. And talking about the Russian Revolution up until um, World War Two, what was just so alarming to me, and I guess talks to a wider conversation we need to have about education, is how integral anti-Semitism was during this period. Like, we just learned about, like, Lenin, Stalin, all these things, but never in my A-level history did we talk about how important anti-Semitism was and how the Bolsheviks ran campaign in their rise to power on being sort of leftist and anti-racist, but then actually ended up being very, very racist. So I don't, I don't know if it'd be good, Brendan, if you just talk to us a little bit about the premise of the book and that how you lead on to those discussions about the wider problem of anti-Semitism and the Russian Revolution, understudied issue of anti-Semitism and the Russian Revolution. Sure, I'd be glad to. I mean, I guess the first thing to say is the reason I wrote the book, you know, you mentioned the article on Brexit that was co-written with Satnam Verdi. Satnam was my PhD supervisor at the University of Glasgow. I remember sitting in his office one day and he says, right, you should apply for a PhD. What do you want to do it on? And we sort of sat discussing things. And I said, well, look, I want to look at how Marxist political formations have kind of grappled with questions of race and racialization, how Marxist movements have been entangled, not just in the anti-racist struggle, but within, you know, confronting these questions as they appear within the movement itself. And he said to me, why don't you look at the Russian Revolution and anti-Semitism, which is like a kind of bolt from the blue. I said, well, I need to learn Russian. And he goes, and he said to me, by the way, if you learn Russian, I'll learn it too. And I'm still waiting <laughs> 10 years later for Satnam to learn Russian. Satnam, anyway, surviving society call out. You need to learn. <laughs> so so I signed up. I said, like, and I'd done some courses, obviously, on, on Russian history and the history of the Russian Revolution at Glasgow, which has a really strong kind of specialism in both racism studies and Soviet studies. So the kind of two worked really well. And then the third sort of aspect was my own background, which is, you know, a mixture of Jewish and Irish. And I don't know, it just kind of, it didn't feel so strange to me to to do a PhD on anti-Semitism, I guess. So I went for it. And yeah, and just to go back to what you said, Chantelle, about, you you know, it's really fascinating to hear you talk about your experiences of like Russian history at school level. And you said, you know, where was anti-Semitism? And you're absolutely right to kind of identify how crucial anti-Semitism was in, in this historical moment. I mean, if we think about late imperial Russian society. So this is a multi-ethnic empire that stretches over around 20% of the landmass of planet Earth. It's a huge, huge kind of formation. And the empire collapses and this revolutionary Marxist movement comes to power. And like, if we think kind of sociologically for a moment, I guess the dominant paradigm of racializing othering in Russian society is anti-Semitism. It's not the only form of racism in Russian society, but it's the one that seems to just be so utterly explosive. It's like the kind of it's the it's a kind of powder keg dimension in society that a whole set of social questions come to be organized around. So power, the economy, ethnicity, class, gender, all these kind of big questions in society seem to coalesce around anti-Semitism in some point or other in the course of the revolution. Yeah, just to kind of give you a, a sort of a sketch of of the basics here there's around you know five to six million jews that live in this region huge region called the pale of settlement which is like a massive territorial region that jews in the late imperial period are not allowed to this is up to 1917 jews are not allowed with a few restrictions jews are not allowed to leave this area they're restricted to particular economic spheres and there's a whole raft, over a thousand pages of kind of state anti-Semitism of the Tsarist regime, which collapses, of course, in February 1917 in the First Revolution. So overnight, Jews go from being a kind of persecuted minority at state level who suffer waves of kind of anti-Semitic violence from below, from society. The word pogrom, by the way, yes. is, a, is a Russian word. 
It derives from the Russian verb gramit, which is like to plunder, to destroy, and it enters the English language at this period, just before the revolution, exactly because of the anti, the waves of anti-Jewish violence and the kind of international response to that popularizes the word pogrom in English. Uh, so it, its association in English comes from this anti-Jewish violence that Jews experience in the Tsarist period. And then in October 1917, this bunch of revolutionary, you know, activists who at the start of the year are tiny and by the end of the year are a kind of mass formation with hundreds of thousands of members, they come to power. It's a kind of it's it's a it's a glorious moment in the history of Marxism because it's the first time that you know a Marxist revolutionary movement comes to power and establishes a regime of that scale and of and with that scope according to Marxist principles, right? And as you say, one of its kind of core messages is its opposition to what it calls pogroms, as counter-revolutionary pogroms. Anti-racist promise of the revolution really stretches far and wide and reaches like a, a global multi-ethnic audience. We can think for a moment about Claude McKay in the Harlem Renaissance in New York, who kind of receives this message and says, right, well, if Bolshevism is against racism, and if Bolshevism fights the race riots in Russia against the Jews, then maybe Bolshevism will save us as well here in the States. So it's kind of like the anti-racism or the anti-racist message and promise of the revolution really stretches across the globe. And I guess what I wanted to do in the book was to take this history and to really go into the archives in Russia and, and in Ukraine and to really say, OK, so we know what the, the Bolshevik message was on anti-Semitism, but how did it? respond and that much more granular everyday anti-racist praxis level like how did they engage with anti-semitism when it appeared within yeah sorry it's a bit of a long-winded answer but that's really why i did the book was to, was to look at the, the politics of anti-racism in this in mm -hmm. this extraordinary moment you know it really was an extraordinary moment because right after the bolsheviks come to power the most ferocious wave of anti-jewish violence which is of an of an of a level and significance that is way beyond anything that's happened before. I mean, what we're talking about here is the most violent assault on Jewish life in pre-Holocaust modern history. Mm -hmm. So at least 100,000 Jews are murdered in these waves of pogroms that take place in Russian and Ukrainian society. And, I mean, actually, they, they would be something that was much, much more in our consciousness than they are today if it were not for the Holocaust that happened 20 years later, which completely overshadowed this moment. Uh, but at the time, this was like, yeah, the most significant, really violent assault in Jewish history, modern Jewish history, at least. And most of the violence is carried out by like what we would recognise as the kind of the political right, the kind of anti-Bolshevik, anti-left militarized forces a lot of this is from below this is kind of anti-semitic violence from below from neighbors of jews from from peasant guerrilla movements but also from kind of you know soldiers that had previously been in the czarist army but when i went into the archive and started to look at this stuff you know i came across this interesting and uncomfortable fact that one in ten pogroms were also carried out by the revolutionary left by the soviet red army so I guess what the book does is to try to grapple with, you know, why was there this really significant presence of anti-Semitism in the revolutionary movement and how, and crucially, how did, how did the Bolshevik state and the revolutionary movement respond to that at the level of kind of anti-racist praxis? That's really what the book in its bare sense is about. And yeah, and, and so it's a kind of case study in that sense. Well, what I was kind of picking up on that, um, as I was speaking before, Bridget, is like, for me, what you said about the kind of the Bolshevik Revolution representing something that unites all of mankind. It doesn't see race. And you can draw parallels with the early revolutions in France and in America. This idea that everyone sits within mankind, but it didn't apply to everyone equally. In America and in France, poor people, Jews and black people were excluded. And in the Bolshevik Revolution, it's a similar thing. People are still considered other. They still exist outside the utopian vision of what makes a good society. I think that's absolutely right. And one of the things that the Bolshevik leadership really came to terms with was the depth, the kind of sedimented depth of anti-Semitism within popular society. So, I mean, you know, they come to power, they enact all these pieces of legislation that are anti-racist, 
but you're faced with a society and with a political culture that really has been scarred by this anti-Semitism for a significant number of years. Back to what you said about man, you know, and this kind of enlightenment conception of man, I think that's absolutely right. And one of the interesting things is if we look at the part that the Bolshevik party leadership at the level of kind of auto, their, their own autobiographies, but also what they said about these issues, I think it's clear that their conception of, you know, humanity was absolutely a multi-ethnic one, right? This is a multi-ethnic empire that they've taken over, if you like, and they thought in global terms, right? And it's no surprise that, that their offering to the world of kind of revolutionary socialism was one that was taken up in multi-ethnic spaces. So, and, and if you look at individually, I mean, a number of the sort of non-Jewish Bolsheviks married into Jewish families. And they all, and actually, if you look at Liliana Riga's work, who's a historical sociologist at Edinburgh, what she's really shown is that this was a kind of the kind of culture of this political movement at the top. I'm talking specifically about the leadership here, was one that just de-emphasised ethnicity, not in the way that we might today say they were colourblind, not in that sense, but they they had a kind of vision of the world in which we could move beyond these categories into something else. And that, I think, why, is why Bolshevism spoke to people like Claude McKay and Paul Robeson and others. But the trouble was, when you're talking about mass politics and you've got a movement of hundreds of thousands of people, they had people in the movement for whom these categories did matter, right? Ethnicity did matter. And actually, their conception of what a human being was or man was a racialized one and Jews were not included. So mm -hmm. this was this is the kind of messiness, if you like, of the history, you know, we can read what Lenin and Trotsky say and say this is exemplary politics in terms of race, or we can actually look at the movement as a whole and disaggregate it downward and think about how racialization was present there in the movement itself. And that leads to much more interesting questions about anti-racist strategy. But wouldn't you say, and, and, and this is how I'm just thinking now from a purely political theory standpoint, so if you took someone like Burke who argues that things like traditions matter, these things are real, you're dealing with things that exist in the real world, so these things are always going to be problematic because they're not abstract notions as in rights or a utopian vision of what man is or what a, or what a Bolshevik is. These are abstract notions that are not built on the reality of the world. These notions are what makes people human and non-human part of people's histories, right? So how would you separate that? This is always, always would occur. The history of Europe shows you that much before the revolution, we had the big waves of um, Russian Jews coming over to London and settling in East London. So this is not too far back. So how did they expect that it was going to change overnight? It was never was going to be that way. Right. And this is a kind of political field, if you want to think of it in that way, in which some of the categories of the revolution, which in the minds of the Bolshevik leadership are the best categories to deal with race, right? To cut through politics of kind of racialized othering. Best categories to cut through race are like class, for example. They tried to respond to this profound, differentiated, multi-ethnic empire along the lines of ethnicity. They tried to respond to that by saying it's not about ethnicity, it's not about race, it's about class, right? Class, it's about... the the poor people against the rich people. This is the kind of basic language that you see in the revolutionary discourse. And the trouble they run into quite quickly is that in the minds of the wider population, especially in, in, in Ukraine, for example, ethnicity and class are kind of overdetermined by each other. They're kind of mutually co-constituting categories. So the Jew, that quote unquote, the Jew as a, as a figure in the popular imaginary is a classed figure. Right. Is someone who stands aloof from the working people, like the kind of person that's not got dirt under their fingernails or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. Like not got that organic relationship to hard work. Mm -hmm. And the Ukrainian or the Russian is a much more kind of organically pure being going back to your category of man. Again, the Bolsheviks run into trouble where the categories they reserve for revolutionary kind of politics get tangled up with race in ways that they can't control and can't keep a handle on. One of the things I did in the archives and the research for the book was to look at these kind of secret at the time reports that are sent from Red Army officers to Lenin and Trotsky and the, and the Bolshevik leadership. And they say, like, our Red Army unit is totally overrun with anti-Semitism. One of the slogans that they keep chanting is, long live Soviet power, long live the revolution, down with the Jews. So, like, you see the kind of confluence and messiness of the way that race is manifesting in 
radical politics. I mean, I appreciate this is some distance from where we are today, but yeah. the broad, but but the broader themes have kind of travelled with us in the sense. No, that... it's to me like it's really talking to now. I feel like you're really talking about through the Russian Revolution the problems with the left, and it's like that binarized understanding <laughs> of comprehension within the left on ethnicized difference, racialized difference needing to be obliterated in order to talk about class is actually our downfall and like t said on the podcast before sometimes the right and the people that hate us the most are better at talking about about the importance of difference than the left because the left just want to dismiss it and just pretend it's not happening before it's too late and i just feel like that and that example you just gave of the letters down with the jews like it just encapsulate class politics and the left across Europe. The idea that anti-Semitism becomes mixed up with class, but also because I think for me, anti-Semitism as a form of racism comes associated with power. And power is a very unique, unique dynamic in racism, right? So anti-Semitism, the Jews take on, they become part of that power structure, but they've also alienated because of that power structure. Depends what, what angle you look at. So if you are a corporate fascist, you want to eliminate that power structure because they're part of the overarching theme. If you're a, a radical Bolshevik, you need to get rid of the kind of capitalist, and that is the Jew who embodies all that power. And that's an, it's perceived it, when, as that. It's perceived yeah, when you but when you talk about racism, and you look at it from an anti-black perspective, we have no power. So it's we we speak about things. It's a unique proposition in the, in the terms of racism that Jews who are seen as the other also are seen as the other with power which is an odd way of looking at it. Two things. One, it's part of the specificity of anti-Semitism, exactly in the way you say that the way that in the racialising discourse about Jews, the way that it works often is that it positions Jews in a certain way in which they are kind of up there, in the upper echelons, as it were. The second thing, of course, is that this makes it sometimes difficult for the left in the sense that it's an awkward form of racialization at times, not always by any stretch, but at times for a political project that's predicated upon attacking the levers of power, right? And this is this is what the the sadly late critical theorist Moshe Pistone identified as, as part of the kind of problem of anti-Semitism is that in moments of political crisis, he said, Anti-Semitism has this quality whereby it can appear to be anti-hegemonic. This is its danger, right? This is the danger of anti-Semitism for the left, if we're talking about the left specifically. And anti-Semitism kind of offers what he called a fetishized form of oppositional consciousness. Like a kind of, it expresses a simplified offering for a movement of, say, the oppressed against the oppressors, against the kind of global forms of domination. And that's what, and this is absolutely by no means unique to the left, but but the left is perhaps vulnerable to this at times when attacks are made on a kind of personified idea of power. And if we go back to the Russian Revolution, this is exactly what we find in these reports which I mentioned, which again sent, sent to Lenin and Trotsky and the party leadership, where they're commenting on the fact that, you know, members of the party at the local level or Red Army soldiers engaged in the revolution see no contradiction between fighting for the revolution and, and fighting against the Jews because they see the revolution as being a question of power, right? We have no power. We are powerless peasants, powerless workers, and we're going to attack the rulers and attack the speculators and attack the bourgeoisie. Those categories are racialized categories from below, from mm -hmm. below. And this makes it very difficult uh, for the Bolsheviks in the context of the Russian Revolution. And we might think about how this can sometimes be difficult for the left today when we think about kind of certain anti-capitalist visions that are conjured up on the contemporary mm -hmm. left and how they sometimes are left vulnerable to anti-Semitic interpretations, independent, by the way, often of the intent of those who kind of conjure up these visions. But I think I think one of the vulnerabilities of the left historically, especially well, if you look from the Russian Revolution, look at the history, they're free and... The vast lot of people were, were they were serfs, and this movement is seen as a liberation movement. And if you look at the kind of parallels with the kind of post nineteen forty five UK government, they come in. The left is seen as a, a progressive, looking to emancipate the, the majority of people from poverty, things that have affected humankind forever. So you make the NHS, so it becomes wrapped up around these kind of emblems of helping people, of being the help of mankind, and that is its weakness. 
Mm. I think one of the things that I see from when I used to argue with, well, not argue, when I was looking at the far right, is they see people of the left as pontificating, as they, 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 are, they are beyond reproach, as in they are intellectual, they, are, they see things clearer. I don't know if I agree with you, T, that it's a weakness of the left to want to help more no. people. I think it's a I think it's a shield that it can be exploited because it doesn't see the nuance. So, except for example, if we understand that racism exists in the ether and it's a socialising force, that you, you're not beyond reproach. You suffer from the same things the right does, right? But you handle it in a different way. You don't speak about it. Yeah, that's it. what I said. Yeah, yeah. That's what I said. That's what I said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> same point. That's what I think it talks to. Like, I yeah. think what Brendan plays out so, so clearly, like, mm. and it's, it's it's almost remarkable for me, T, because the amount of times I've called you up and asked you these very pressing questions about the relationship between the left, anti-Semitism and class and our inability to talk about that in a productive way, I feel like Brendan is literally hitting the nail on the head and that's why I'm a bit sort of sat here gobsmacked. Like, our inability to recognise the importance of talking about difference, ethnicised, racialized, our inability to talk about that and be upfront about that. Things like anti-Semitism go on for someone like me, like who's studying sociologists, to be fully understood for a long time. Yeah, I guess there's, there's two things to say. I, there's two sort of, you both said really interesting things and I kind of want to try to come back on them. Um, back to T's point about, you know, I, I think what, one thing I'd say there is that anti-Semitism and actually racism more generally offers something to people who are in search of an explanation for the world. Yes. I mean, if we think through with Gramsci for a moment, right, or kind of Hall's, Stuart Hall's okay. version of Gramsci, yeah. where we've got to like, we've got to understand why racism gains traction. Like, how how does it meet people, you know, psychosocially, if you want to think of it that way, how does it meet people where they are at? And why, why, why does it attach to people? Why do people attach themselves to it? And, and we can think of anti-Semitism in that way and say, and, and maybe say, as we do in this article uh, on the Labour Party, actually, is that it offers straight, seemingly straightforward solutions for people who are in search of them. Ah, it's the work of the Jews or whatever, this kind of mm -hmm. the messiness of global capitalism, the kind of intangible forms of domination that we're all experiencing. You know, anti-Semitism gives a neat explanation to that, a racialized one, but it is an explanation. So that's one way we might think about why anti-Semitic ideas or any racist ideas kind of gain force, if you like. But to come back to Chantel's point about difference, which I think is so, so important. I mean, one thing to emphasize that maybe my previous answer didn't is that the Bolsheviks actually have a kind of contradictory, to go back to the Russian Revolution, the Bolsheviks have a kind of contradictory position on this. When they confront anti-Semitism, in the day-to-day -day political struggle. They say things like, it's not about ethnicity, it's not about Jewish this or poor, it's about are you poor or are you rich? It's about class. Class is the way in to make sense of the world. So it's a kind of, in one sense, you might say it's a class reductionism that's unable to deal with difference, exactly as you said, Chantel. But then if you look at other Bolshevik areas of work, for example, the way they do state building, they actually care about difference a lot to the point where they encourage kind of what one historian Terry Martin has called like the first affirmative action empire. They like encourage minority ethnic populations to like have their own forms of state representation, in some cases their own republics or municipal form of governance. And actually they, they allocate Jews the same the same privilege in the late nineteen twenties, early nineteen thirties, where they say, Okay, you can have a kind of Zionist homeland in the Far East. In at the ends of Siberia, and you can have a kind of Jewish autonomous republic there, which still exists to this day, by the way. <laughs> there is a kind of Jewish autonomous republic mm -hmm. called Bira, called Bijan at the other end of the former empire. Yeah, they do care about difference in one sense, in the sense of like accommodating this multi-ethnic empire. And one thing that's really, really important is there are some non-Bolshevik revolutionary Jews kind of to quote Isaac Deutscher, like Jewish Jews, we might say. That is to say, they're not assimilated Jews. They're much more engaged in kind of a Yiddish-inflected, everyday kind of lived Jewish culture. They hear this Bolshevik message about revolution and about not obliterating difference. And they say, OK, I can work with that. 
I'll go to this Bolshevik government and I'll take part in this revolution. And the Bolsheviks say, OK, you can set up your own commissariat, your kind of Jewish department in the government. And you can have things like Yiddish theater and Yiddish newspapers. And we'll give you a, a degree of kind of, I guess you might call it ethnic representation at state level. And we'll fund you to do this, which is quite extraordinary. If you think about it, this as a kind of anti-Semitic society for, you know, for the whole late imperial period. And suddenly they're getting state, Jews are getting state funded kind of, you know, newspaper schools and theaters. It's a huge shift in emancipation, literally overnight. And it's out of that offering, that kind of multi-ethnic representation of difference from, from the Bolshevik states, out of that offering that you get this movement of non-Bolshevik Jewish revolutionaries into the state, into the kind of early Soviet state. And it's those individuals that are the ones I found in the book who really carry forward the campaign against anti-Semitism. They're the ones, that, what Satnam Verdi, I guess, would call the racialized outsiders, uh, who kind of are at the margins of the Bolshevik project, are at the margins of Russian society. And it's that marginality, if you like, that cultivates a kind of rad you know, a radical openness, you know, to quote Hooks, but also kind of a, just a, a kind of radical possibility in their anti-racism, where they, they were the ones who pushed the question of actually confronting anti-Semitism onto the political agenda. So... It's, it's kind of it's hard to kind of categorize the Bolsheviks in one moment they're kind of class reductionist in another moment they give scope for ethnic minority political mobilization and it's out of that mobilization that the campaign against anti-semitism comes so it doesn't come from the beating heart of Russian socialism as it were it's not it's it, it comes from the margins and I think that's a story that's very much still with us today in terms of anti-racist politics right you know everyone says we're against racism but who's actually doing the work? the educative work of, you know, bringing movements, social movements to gain a more kind of adequate literacy around race and to recognise and confront the way that race is lived and, and, and manifests uh, in, in, in all levels and all dimensions of society. That's a lot. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's a point I'm trying to say, but... No, I've got a question, Brenda. That was absolutely brilliant. I've got a question. What does the book tell us? What can we take away from the book and your research and your scholarship and just thinking about anti-Semitism more broadly, but also particularly thinking about it in terms of the Russian Revolution? What does this stuff tell us about how we could understand or conceptualise anti-Black racism? Because mm. often scholars who maybe need to explain themselves a tiny, tiny bit more Talk about the relationship between anti-Semitism and anti-Black racism. Okay, wow, there's a lot in there. These are this, <laughs> yes. these are these are big, big questions. One. These are big questions, Chantel, and in many ways they they are the questions. Just to go back to the first bit about you know what what does the book tell us today more generally? I mean, I guess that's for readers to decide. But when I was writing it, and I remember writing the conclusion, I mean, one one thing I was really trying to grapple with was, or this history rather, what, what it shows us is that racism has no necessary political home. We recognise racism in the shape of the kind of political right. We recognise Tory state racism. We recognise, you know, if we look at the history of the Russian Revolution, we recognise the anti-Semitism of the White Army, as it was called, the, the kind of the Tsarist restorationist military movement. So we, we recognise it when it appears over there. And actually, what this history shows to us is that anti-Semitism, to quote UT, is, is there in the ether. Racism's there in the ether. And it's no surprise in some senses that it crops up much, much closer to home. And that it's much more difficult to confront it when that happens. So thinking about the revolution as a, it really is a particularly unique moment in history i think you know the revolution's understood today rightly in many ways as this moment of radical social transformation of kind of tremendous capacity when the, a new world seemed possible but i think we should also remember the revolution in its complications and i guess thinking through the question of race and racism I think what that history shows to us is that anti-racism is something that has to be cultivated and renewed continually. It doesn't flow automatically from socialist politics. It doesn't flow kind of 
automatically from revolutionary movements. It has to be constantly pulled into the conversation. And we can look at who does that work, that unrecognized difficult work. And there's lots of scholars who have addressed that question in different periods and different kind of parts of the world. My book is one kind of tiny element in that in that much broader literature. So I guess kind of a century on as we really grapple and are still grappling with the damage that racism's done to everyday life and to class politics more generally, I guess we can see the Russian Revolution in two senses. One as an illustration of how reactionary ideas can take hold where we least expect them to take hold. And on the other hand, it also perhaps offers us some some ways of thinking about the nature of anti-racist praxis, about how not just political movements reach the positions that they declare, we're against this, we're against that, but how the actual lived struggle of, of articulating, sustaining and maintaining an anti-racist politics, the book maybe tells us something about that difficult work. Hopefully, you know, reaches people beyond those who are interested in just what happened in the Russian Revolution or whatever. Um, but yeah, so that's the answer. That's what is my answer, I think, to the first bit of your question about what's the significance mm -hmm. of the book or what might it tell us. The much, much bigger element of your question, Chantel, is about the relationship between anti-black racism and anti-Semitism, which, you know, there's like, we, we, we need a whole conversation about that. I mean, just, yes. just to kind of think about it in the narrow sense of the Russian Revolution, actually, I mean, one of the interesting things, and I think we, we discussed this, we touched on this earlier in the conversation, you know, one of the interesting things about this moment in history is that the, the, the Russian Revolution is kind of one illustration of a sort of multi-directional anti-racism, right? On the one hand, you've got this opposition to anti-Semitism inside Russia itself, and it reaches the Black Atlantic in a really extraordinary way. I mean, if you read what Claude McKay is writing, just as these pogroms are taking place, I mean, he, he is saying, like, I recognize this. I see what's happening there in Russia. I recognize this. This looks like what we confront here in the United States. And what's remarkable about that is that he saw no contradiction between anti-Semitism and anti-black racism. He saw them as emanating from the same source. And that's one illustration of a kind of multi-directional racism, which today feels in short supply. You know, fast forward in a century to 2020 right now, it seems that there's been perhaps a kind of parting of the ways among the forces that resist racisms of different sorts. And it's, you know, if we just take the Labour Party for one, ex one example, we've got definitions of anti-Semitism, definitions of Islamophobia, definitions of anti-black racism. These definitions abound, but when are they ever joined up together? When are the threads that tie these racisms together ever identified? And it's really politically difficult to do that today for a whole set of reasons that we can go into. I mean, I would love it if people read the book as a kind of an offering for a multidirectional anti-racism. I mean, certainly that's what our more recent stuff on the Labour Party has been about. Um, but it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's difficult work, Chantel. It's difficult. And I, I, absolutely, I do not have the answers. I mean... Before we started talking, before we started recording, we were talking about Holocaust commemoration and the way that slavery has been addressed or not addressed in this country. And there's so many reasons that push people towards not joining up the dots and not making these connections with, with, with other racisms. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult task today to sustain a multidirectional anti-racism. What's interesting for me, and I, like what you just said, that the kind of multidirectional racism is that when it is... When it has been utilised, sometimes it's been utilised in forms of propaganda. So during World War One and World War Two, the Nazis did it with the saying to the black soldiers, "Look, you're oppressed in your homeland. We were, we don't see your race." The Viet Cong did it to the to the Americans, and famously, like Muhammad Ali saying, "He won't kill no Viet Cong because he could see that struggle in them." But it's always exploitative, so people can see the link. Getting it, do it in a I don't know, you such kind of banal statements like for for the forces of good rather than for partisan reasons, you know? It, it's not like we don't have the resources for this. I mean, if you go back to some of the kind of foundational works of anti-colonial thought, right, we see mm -hmm. it, or, or even let, let's think more broadly, right? If we take sociology, mm -hmm. the kind of early work in the 1950s on prejudice was began from a position they, they recognised anti-Semitism as a form of racism, right? If we look at the UNESCO statements on race around that same period, 
you know, they, again, it's from a shared premise that there's, a, there's, there's something fundamentally, categorically wrong about the category of race, and that's connected to the Holocaust. And then if we look at some of the, you know, the extraordinary work by, say, Amy Césaire, right, on Discourses of Colonialism, which talks about the boomerang effect and links the Holocaust into this kind of conceptualization of colonial violence. Or we go to Du Bois and his extraordinary statement on having visited the Warsaw Ghetto after the war. Or, or Fanon, for that matter, right? Fanon in black skin, but he talks really explicitly and brilliantly about the difficult hard work of connecting anti-Jewish and anti-black racism. It's not straightforward, mm-hmm. but, but, but he, he, he manages it. We, I think it was, it was a Fanon that I first read in Black Skin's White Mask that I first was like, oh, wow, okay. Yeah. But I think it's, does he, does he say tea? Like, um, yeah, he black does. people are black and the persecution of the Jew, just know your name. That, that's right. He, he, he's talking about his professor and he says, and his, his professor mm-hmm. says to him, when they, talk about the, when they talk about the Jew, pay attention because they're talking about you. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so, but it, it raises a question, you know, of in the middle of the 20th century, these connections were, were less difficult to make in terms of anti-racist scholarship and anti-racist politics. And today, the kind of intellectual and political resources that we might be able to draw on in the contemporary moment are much thinner on the ground. And there's been a kind of parting of the ways, if you like, in among the forces that resist racism. And this is not just about anti-Semitism. I mean, this, Sivanandan was talking about this. Gilroy spoke about this, you know, the kind of fragmentation of anti-racist struggles in the, in, in the late 80s and early 90s and the kind of retreat into specific forms of opposition to particular racisms. I think it's important to talk about that retreat, but I sometimes feel like amongst some of us that hope for a collective anti-racist futures, that we kind of sometimes skip over why those specificities were needed different racialized groups having issues with each other for example hierarchies of racism and recognizing who gets more scope to belong and more scope for economic stability social stability like it does end up getting both race and class and I feel like sometimes although like we need it's important to have collectivity and that we need that sometimes I feel like we have to recognize some of the important reasons why that didn't happen and why we are in fragmentation. I think that's a really, really important point. And it's back to your earlier point, actually, about difference and the importance of working with difference. I mean, I, I guess one thing I'd say in response is that in identifying the specificity, say in this case, in, in the work we're discussing just now, in identifying the specificities of anti-Semitism, that shouldn't prevent you from understanding and drawing the associations with its links with other forms of racialization. Because when you make those associations, actually you understand anti-Semitism's location within the history of racialization in Europe, right? More generally. It makes richer your understanding of anti-Semitism to situate it inside and alongside other histories of racism. I guess that's the point I was trying to make. But when, when we turn to politics, when we turn to politics and how you address the specificities of racialized violence, you often have to address the specificity. Absolutely. I mean, and that to go back to the, the Russian Revolution, that's what these revolutionary Jews are doing. They're saying, no, we need, actually, they say we need a dedicated state response to anti-Semitism. We need a department within the state government that deals day-to-day with anti-Jewish violence. So they get specificity but they also situate it in something that never limits itself to that specificity. It's always in some way reaching beyond while never letting go. What it speaks to is the kind of fragmentation in the political world of race. So it becomes attached to a kind of color-coded understanding of race. So there is the black struggle, the, the, the Jewish struggle is seen, is almost kind of viewed from certain angles, it's almost conspiratorial. It isn't linked to that wider discourse that you're talking that reaches beyond it. It's, it's down to the level. So on a, on a day-to-day level, people start saying, well, you've got this, we've got, we get that, you've got this, we don't have this, you've got more protection than us. And it's the kind of misery Olympics that happens. It's, it, it's a race to the bottom. Yes. <laughs> Perhaps we could talk specifically in the UK context now, thinking about the brilliant article has recently been published in, is it called Political Quarterly? Thinking about the Labour Party and 
Tiso's talking about the sort of everyday nature of um, anti-Semitism and how quickly it comes up into vocabulary and how easily it's sort of like just used and sort of taken as an anti-Semitic views sort of taken as common sense. And that is re- it's so, so problematic. And I think you really lay bare how problematic that is in the article. How can we reconcile with hierarchies of racism and how seriously that they get taken and in particular I wanted to talk about the Labour Party and the left and the way anti-Semitism sort of the coverage of it and the way it was spoken about um, as something that was a a plethora within the Labour Party as opposed to the anti-black racism that we see within the Labour Party. More recently, thinking about Labour Party MPs talking about like Diane Abbott and Dawn Butler, like how those anti-black racisms are sometimes not taken as seriously. And of course, there are so many reasons why that happens. And I think you really eloquently talked to this, Brendan. So it'd be great to sort of have a broad conversation about these issues once again, Chantel, you're asking the big questions. <laughs> Let me give it my best shot. I mean, I'll start with the one about the Labour Party, right? And just and just kind of what 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 is going on with this whole debate. So this whole debate has been preoccupied with a question, right? Which is why is there so much anti-Semitism in Labour? Or, or why is anti-Semitism so unique to Labour? And I guess what we tried to do in this article in the Political Quarterly is to say, well, this is the wrong place to start, or the question has been wrongly posed. So to understand place of anti-Semitism in in Labour, or to understand Labour's problem with anti-Semitism that it continues to face, we need to step back a bit and say, well, look, what do we know about anti-Semitism in this country, in Britain? Well, we can turn to the work of the Institute for Jewish Policy Research, the JPR, is probably the most sophisticated study we have to hand on the issue. And they make the really useful distinction between like hardened anti-Semites, people that are like thoroughly committed, consistently kind of thorough growing individuals who harbour anti-Semitic attitudes about Jews consistently, right? Who we might recognise as anti-Semites. They distinguish between them on the one hand and the broader spread of anti-Semitic ideas in society. So if we start with the first group, JPR tells us that around 5% of the British population we could, com- we could confidently classify as kind of hardened, recognisable anti-Semites who are consistently anti-Jewish. So this is... Well, the, this is the thing, right? This is a really, this is a really, this is a really significantly low number, right? I mean, this is lower... lower than the number who hold corresponding attitudes towards Muslims, for example, right? and lower than it is, say, in Eastern Europe. But this is the crucial thing. The number of anti-Semites is not the same thing as the spread of anti-Semitic ideas in society. It's not this, anti-Semites and anti-Semitism are not the same thing. And if we go back to the JPR research, what they showed, and this is attitudinal studies, what they showed is that actually one in three adults, so 30% of the population, assent to one or more anti-Semitic ideas about Jews. For example, Jews have too much power, Jews think they're better than others, Jews get rich at the expense, and like, we can reel off the kind of the stereotypes as it were. So now we see that there's an anti-Semitism. If we shift from anti-Semites to anti-Semitism, now we see that there's an anti-Semitism which is in the culture and in the society which is much more significant and much greater than the narrower question of well, how many committed anti-Semites are there in Britain. So that helps us to kind of begin to think about Labour's issue. So if we then turn and say, right, well, where are these ideas located politically? Here it gets even more interesting because if we turn to the research done by YouGov, as we do in this article, we find that actually... Labour Party members over the piece are no more likely than Conservative supporters to be anti-Semitic, no more likely than than Conservative supporters to kind of like, you know, to assent, if you like, to an anti-Semitic idea. So this presents a big puzzle and a big problem. Why is there so much focus on Labour when, as we can see, the Conservatives have the same problem if you do, you know, attitudinal research? And a whole bunch of responses have been given to this puzzle. One is to shout, well, it's just a smear, right? It's just weaponized and nothing else. It's a smear to discredit socialists who want to, you know, fight for Palestinian liberation and Palestinian rights or who want to fight for socialism here in the UK. And we argue in the piece that that's not a tenable 
response. Because we again go back to the spread of anti-Semitic ideas in society, we see it in the JPR research, one in three members of the adult population and of the Labour and, and, and supporters of the Labour Party assent to these ideas. So the question is not, are Labour Party members and supporters more anti-Semitic than the Tories? The question is, why does the anti-Semitism that's in Labour rise to the surface? And that's a question that people haven't posed up to now. And we tried to grapple with that in the article. And one of the, the, the answers that we give to that are that, well, Jews inter, intersect or are perceived to intersect with issues that some Labour supporters care about. Power, capitalism and the situation in Israel-Palestine. So Jews provide the foil. Like quoting like Jews and Jewishness, quote unquote, these ideas in the popular imaginary, provide the foil and are just there. They're there to be drawn on, as you said, T, within the political culture, whenever these issues come to the fore, as they, as they have done time and again in recent years in this crisis, you know, geopolitically in that crisis and the crisis closer to home here as well. So that's a kind of different answer to the question to the ones that have been given so far and, and and if you kind of look at the debate you see that actually th th this whole question has been wrongly posed and wrongly conceptualized i mean most people in the debate on all sides from from corbyn to the chief rabbi talk about anti-semitism as a virus mm -hmm. right as a poison and that isn't that doesn't sit with the JPR findings of 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 anti-Semitism as something that's much more deeply sedimented in 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 the culture. You know, what's a virus or a cancer or a poison? It latches on from the outside onto an otherwise healthy body. Whereas we see anti-Semitism as much more kind of distilled and sedimented within the society and within the culture in the way that we understand racism actually more generally. So the problem kind of conceptually has been misunderstood and the right questions haven't been posed up to now. And we, 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 we try to sketch out some provisional answers in the piece. Sorry, this is a really long, <laughs> long answer. You just so clearly lay out the things that happen and the things that we should be thinking about. I mean, I mean, we, we don't think of, I mean, some of the analogies and metaphors that have been conjured up to make sense of this is like, you know, the idea of bad apples, right? Like, so the response from all sides is to get rid of the bad apples, expel, 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 zero tolerance. And OK, like expulsions might be necessary, are necessary in a political party trying to deal with racism. Sure. No one's disputing that. But this isn't a comprehensive enough response to deal with the problem at hand. Right. Because it's not a question of a few bad apples, a few individuals who've kind of caught the contagion. You know, the. The tree isn't otherwise healthy in society, right? Racism is, as you two have shown time and again in this podcast, is much, much more seriously and significantly embedded in the structures and cultures of society. It's not about bad apples. And anti-Semitism in that sense, you know, it should be similarly conceived, we argue. So I, would you argue like it's similar to how the West see themselves in that kind of scientific mode? So they see the psyche like Durkheim would see it as a human body and anything that's wrong with it, you exercise right. this bit. Or if, if you talk about it from a, a kind of Catholic me metaphor, you go to confession and you exercise, you confess your sins. So it's seen as the biggest sin was exercise with the defeat of Nazism. And, and, and therefore we start afresh, we start anew. So how even how I learned history in school, 1945 was presented as a new day for Europe. It, it overcome all the problems of the past. So Nazism, as in being the ultimate evil, had been defeated. And us, the good guys, had won. So all the bad stuff, even though we did do bad stuff, all that swept under the carpet and good has won. Right, right has won. I, I think that's really important, T, and actually connects with the second bit to Chantel's question, which I hadn't got to, which is about kind of hierarchies of racism and thinking about anti-black and anti-Jewish racisms in labour and the kind of differential attention that these issues have been given. I mean, one of the interesting things about the last five years, I think, by five years, I mean the Corbyn years and this whole debate about anti-Semitism. One of the interesting things I think it's shown is the force that the charge of anti-Semitism carries in British political life. Now, 
you know, a whole bunch of accusations were made at, at, at Corbyn and the Corbyn project that, you know, there was an, the, the accusation about being IRA sympathisers, Czech spies and whatever. And there's something about anti-Semitism that landed. Now, we argue and show in the piece that's partly because Labour actually does have an issue with anti-Semitism. And, and we tried to explain how that issue should be understood. But it also tells us about the force and the uh, and the force that, that the charge of anti-Semitism carries in post-war Britain. And this connects to what you said, T, about post-1945. And in some ways, it might join up with some of the writings of, of, the, of the late Tony Judd as well, which is that one of the ways in which the EU and European societies tried to remake themselves after the nightmare of the middle of the 20th century is to understand anti-Semitism as the ultimate form of evil. And in many ways, that's what the last few years has shown. Absolutely nobody wants to be associated with anti-Semitism. Right. And, it, and this whole debate about Labour in many ways is a debate is a debate between people who understand themselves to be within the tradition of anti-racism. Right. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to be associated with with the label anti-Semitism because it's partly understood as the ultimate definition of evil today. And that to understand how that's historically been constituted, you have to look at the post-war period in Britain. It was it's not always been the case. Anti-Semitism is universally understood as a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And yet we're in a moment in which other racisms are not understood in the same way, right? The charge and the accusation of Islamophobia doesn't have the same consequences in British politics. Now, we need to be careful with this argument. Anti-Semitism is real. It's real in labour. It's real in society. Islamophobia is real. It's real in labour. It's real in society. But the meanings, to go to David Feldman's work, if you like here, the meanings of anti-Semitism doesn't they, they don't stand still and the meanings of other racisms don't stand still. And we're in a we're in a contemporary moment just now where the political price you pay for being an Islamophobe or for being anti-black is different, actually, than it is to other forms of racism. And that's a difficult argument to make and a difficult argument to hold in a sensitive way because it's very vulnerable to a kind of denialist interpretation or, or to go back to your point, you know, earlier, T, about kind of responding to these racisms in a hierarchical way with a kind of quick race to the bottom. That's not the way we want to think about this. We want to somehow hold a multi-directional understanding of anti-racism. But it's difficult to do when when there are hierarchies and when when things are responded to unevenly. Uh, so it's not easy. It's not straightforward. I don't know if that's an answer to the question. It's a very good answer. It's a very good answer. It's, a very good answer. it's the type of analysis that I feel like so many need right now and so many of us need because I mean after the general election in 2019 and more recently seeing the Labour Party report and some of the just clear anti-black misogynoir racism that the black women in the party have endured like and this is just me talking from a personal point of view it can be unsettling witnessing and experiencing the way that different racisms are hierarchized but equally, like you want to be able to have that conversation whilst also being clear, as you said in our pre-chat, that these racisms are actualities. They are real. Anti-Semitism is real. Islamophobia is real. Anti-black racism is real. And there's a long history around it. It's messy and it's complex. Okay. It's about just having a better understanding and a better dialogue about that, which I just think is so important to have. Absolutely. And I think one of the challenges we have is... How do we hold these different and at times competing forms of racism and anti-racism, how do we hold them in such a way that we, one, don't flatten them, right, and flatten out their histories and, and kind of make them to be even when they're uneven? How do we do that? And how do we also retain their specificities? Because although they have similar sources, they manifest in different ways. And how do we also insist joining up these histories and, and cultivating what you know we call in the piece borrowing, borrowing from Michael Rothberg's work a kind of multi-directional anti-racism? None of that is difficult in a politically contentious moment such as this one. But I guess there's a kind of radical insistence that we have to do it somehow. On my side, trying to understand if I'm going back to the ends and I speak to young boys and the level of anti-Semitism amongst these young blacks is crazy. And trying to get someone to speak sensitively and understand it, and with that kind of historical and academic context, it matters because they have that deniability that you talk about, 
and they start kind of ranking it. And so when I start trying to try to say to them like their solidarity is their leading way, I'm not as clear as you. And so this is what you've done very deftly, kind of made, made it very clear to people. It's very sublime how things can slip back and forward, you know, in this I mean, kind of debate. Here's one way to think about it. So here's here's a situation. This is the one we're in just now. A Holocaust memorial is about to be built at Westminster. This is a good thing. There should be Holocaust memorials, there should be Holocaust education, and we should defend them whenever they come under attack. And part of what makes this debate contentious is that some anti-racists look at this situation and say, well, why is there no corresponding memorial to enslavement or to colonialism, not least given the specific role of this country in both of those atrocities, ongoing atrocities? And this is what makes the politics of kind of multidirectional anti-racism really, really difficult when the state does not respond to these histories evenly and does not treat them evenly. And it makes it difficult for those of us that want to sustain multidirectionality when people reach for much more denialist and kind of simplistic positions, which is we shouldn't have Holocaust memorials because that stands in the way of recognising my history or, or whatever. And this is the race to the bottom, which we should have no tolerance for. But it's very, very difficult to offer an alternative in the current moment to that response. And I think this ties in with Chantel's question about the kind of what you call the kind of hierarchalized hierarchies of racism. Uh, this is a challenge of our current moment. And I certainly ain't got the answers. <laughs> you have given me the answers I've been needing for years on this. I know that this is going to be so helpful and so beneficial for our listeners. So One thing thank I just you wanted, so much. Oh, Go listen, on. Just Two things then. One thing I really want to say to your listeners is that this article on Labour and anti-Semitism is co-written with Ben Gidley and David Feldman. Thanks so much for having me on this. It really, you know, I felt really touched when I saw that email come through. Do you want to come on? Because I love this show and I listen to it. And just talking to you guys and learning from you guys today and previously, you know, I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. Oh, Brendan, <laughs> thank you so much. That was absolutely brilliant, weren't it, T? I knew that was going to be a good one. It blew my mind, man. It's heavy. It's heavy. It blew my mind. Definitely. Just feelings mutual. Thank you. <laughs> I'm going for a lie down. <laughs> thank you so much, listeners. And um, we'll be back again next week. You have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. If you enjoy the podcast, and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform.